0: Amen. Give me Jesus. Give me all of Christ and all he has to give. I want, I want to know him, don't you? Amen. To be known by him, to know him deeper and better. He's perfect in every way. Well, let's open our Bibles again to Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Today, Lord willing, we bring to a conclusion this very practical section of Scripture, knowing more about how church leadership should function. Admittedly, it's an unusual study. Um, Covering the details of the inner workings of a church doesn't necessarily thrill your soul like that song we just sung, you know, Give Me Jesus. Um, Yet, the need for good church government is... Always going to be there, and it is woven into the fabric of this text as a significant part of how the church advanced the message of its Lord, the Lord Jesus. So we're going to read to begin here again, Acts 6, 1 to 7. Now, at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation and They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Macaner, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many... Of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. We do believe verse 7 belongs in that section because it expresses the result of what happened here. Now, the office of deacon in a formal manner is really not referred to until you get to two other New Testament texts. Acts 6 does not speak of deacons uh, precisely. But the office of deacon is mentioned in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1. I'll read that for you. It says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. It shows both the pastoral board, the overseers, and had multiple members on each board. They were both official offices there in Philippi. They had overseers slash elders slash pastors. They're all the same thing, and they're listed first. It shows their authority and priority, and then shows the deacons in their support role towards them by listing them second. The most important passage on deacons in the New Testament, however, is First Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13, we're going to refer to that passage later. That passage does not describe, interestingly, the work of a deacon. Um, It doesn't describe what the office of the deacon involves. It doesn't say, here's the work that deacons are supposed to be doing, but rather it describes the character qualities required of a man who would serve as a deacon, these are the qualifications of a deacon that are listed uh, there, and there's a lot of wisdom in those qualifications. So the seven here in Acts 6 are not deacons. They are, however, the prototype of the office of deacons, meaning that a secondary office was understood in the church to be needed to buttress the primary office of the elders or pastors who were there to dedicate themselves to the Word of God. In other words, a deacon-like support structure was recognized early in church history that would be there to empower or to free, you might say, the pastors to devote themselves to the calling that God had given them. That is listed as prayer and the ministry of the Word of God. That's their priority. Now, the apostles are serving as the elders in this church. We are in an interesting time. incipient time here, an early stage of church history, and so the universal church is also the same as the local church. So the apostles who are the foundation for every church are also the foundation of this local church and serving as its pastors. The outline we presented comes in three natural divisions here in the text. The first is a problem is presented. Everyone can see it. It's given in a summary fashion there in verse 1. We've covered that before. The solution is in verses 2 through 6. It takes the bulk of the passage, and uh, we're kind of in the midst of that solution now. And then the result of that solution is seen in verse 7. Hopefully, we'll get to that today. The problem, briefly again, was that these Hellenistic widows, a minority within the church, the Hellenists were a minority in the church, were being overlooked in their their care. It was a problem which was a big problem. It could have resulted in disunity in the church. It was no small issues, and the apostles believed it needed to be dealt with. So they present a solution. The solution is seen in verses 2 through 6. From these verses, we were making a series of observations sort of wisdom we're gleaning from these verses to give us observations about a wise way to do church government. When we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, we believe that the Bible is sufficient to teach us in every area of the Christian life. That includes how to do church And so this is not the kind of topic you usually wake up and come to on the morning, I want to hear about church government, but it actually is a very practical and impactful topic for the local church. The first observation we made last time, I'm just going to give them in summary fashion for you now, was that this solution was initiated by the pastors of the church, the apostles. The church was not congregational rule, the church was elder rule. The congregation is seen here very clearly following their elders. In fact, you just see a beautiful relationship between congregation and elders here. The second observation is that the apostles came to the congregation with a unified decision. They derived their opinion about what to do from express teaching of Scripture. Their Lord had told them, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. They knew that was their commission from Christ. So this was just a logical outflow of a direct statement that came from the Lord. And then they came and they spoke to the congregation as one unit. They didn't give different opinions. The third observation is that the whole congregation was to be involved in the selection of these wise leaders. The process that would bring forward men, the entire congregation was to be involved in that. They were to be trusted at least to know who were spirit led and wise men who has already been seen among you as someone that is a leader indeed, shows Christ like humble qualities. They were to be involved in that identification process and kind of pushing them forward so that they would uh, be appointed by the leaders. The fourth observation is that these deacon like leaders were to arise from within the body of believers. Only believers can do spiritual work. It's true that a church in some ways, you know, runs like an organization. Some say the church is a business and it has similarities to businesses and men who have been successful in the non-Christian world or the corporate world have oftentimes come into the organizational structure, usually of larger churches, and they know how to manage people and they know how to solve problems, but they don't have that spiritual component to them, do they? And so they end up causing sort of a carnality to creep into the leadership. And you can't have a spiritual ministry if the men themselves are not spiritual. Now, we made the point that there's only one local church here, so they couldn't ask another local church, hey, do you got a guy that we can you know, use over here in our church? It had to arise from within their own local church. By now, they might be 25, 30,000 members or so uh, in this congregation. So they had plenty of people that they could choose from. It's not to say we can't derive deacons or elders from another congregation but particularly maybe more so with deacons who know the people it's best if they can arise from with the congregation for it shows that they are uh, sympathetic and knowledgeable concerning the people that are there. The fifth observation was that these proto-deacon leaders in this church are to be full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. That is, they are to be characterized by spiritual decisions in their lives. They are to be known for wisdom from God's Word. Remember, wisdom is not savvy business experience. Wisdom is taking the Word of God and having that knowledge of the doctrine, but then knowing how that applies to people and situations to solve it in a Christ-like manner that will bring glory to God. I remember I was once discussing with another leader the readiness of a certain person to be a deacon, and we were having that kind of a conversation behind closed doors. And I asked the question, is this person spiritually minded in your opinion? That is, do they make spiritual kind of decisions? Do they talk about the Lord? Can they share what they're learning from the quiet time? Do they yearn to be under the word of God? Do they lead their family with spiritual kinds of decisions? Those are the kinds of questions that need to be asked of a man to see if he's the kind of example to put before the church. If the answer is no, then more work needs to be done on the man before they would lead. The sixth observation was they were to know what their task was, exactly what they were being asked to do. It's very clear here. They're appointed to this task. Um, we, we mentioned that we could improve that as a church to, to know what different leaders are supposed to do, and we could do a better job at identifying that. But that really helps with each leader knowing their area of responsibility. It helps with communication. It helps so that people don't get frustrated with one another. There's a lot of wisdom in that. The seventh observation, also still review, was that the decisions, the decision needs to bring together the entire church and not alienate some portion of the church. It's not good enough for us to say, you know, this solution is 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 okay for, you know, 73% of us. Who cares about the other group, you know? We don't say that about our own bodies. We don't say, well, you know, the left side of my body is happy with this. So what? We're, who cares about the right side of the body? Uh, we, we are a body of Christ, and to the best of our ability, we want to come up with decisions that will help everyone. Now, you can't please every last person on every issue, but we want, to, we want to bring people together in decisions that say, hey, Christ is the center. We're trying to be concerned about that. The doctrine that we teach is meant to unify and to move together as a body the best that we are able. Um, another way of putting this is minorities must be cared for by the majority And minorities then must strive to work with the majority because we're all one in Christ. And I mean minorities in every direction, whatever the issue may be, whether you're on a minority on this issue or on that issue. And then the eighth observation, and this was the last one we had last time, is choose leaders who have something to do with the problem, who have interest in the problem. It may not be readily apparent to you at the first reading of this text, but the seven men that were chosen were all Hellenistic Jews. They were all from the minority group. You see their list there in in verse 5. And why? Because, again, they're going to be sympathetic with the needs of their widows. They're going to know who they are. They're going to know better how to handle them. And so there's a lot of wisdom in who was chosen as a leader. That's where we left off. All of that was reviewed. So if you missed the first couple, that brings you up to where we are. Ninth observation. This will take a little bit of time. As soon as I tell you, you'll know why. They All those that were chosen were males, not females all of them were male, for positions of authority in God's church. Say that again. For positions of authority, which these men were, all of the men that were chosen were men. They were all males. So if you want to leave now, if you're mad at me, you can go ahead and leave. If you want to give me a chance, we'll uh, work through this, because I think there's important truth here too. The position of the seven was that they were being formally installed into a position where they are told that they would be in charge, that is, that they would have authority. In fact, the laying on of hands in part was to make sure that everyone knew that the authority that Christ had invested in the apostles to a degree was now being invested in these seven men, and they were to be listened to by the whole congregation. That means that those who hold authority over others in God's church and exercise delegated authority from Christ are to be men. Their task, obviously, would require them to be in charge of quite a bit, not just monies and not just events and organization, but also people. And there was really never any debate about this. We don't get a hint of it in the passage that somehow there was a group of people that said, look, we need a couple of women in there. There was no debate among the congregation about this. They all understood it was appropriate for men to have this position, and it was not appropriate for women to have this position. Notice that none in this, and I would remind you, they're a spirit-filled congregation. They're the mother church. They're an example for all of us in many ways. None of them even put forward one woman for the task. It doesn't even say one woman was put forward and the apostles had to remind them this is not appropriate for women. It's not just the male leaders, the apostles, that agreed with this. It was the entire congregation, including the women who agreed with this. They all knew... That women were equal with men. That was the teaching of Jesus. The teaching of Jesus was that women would inherit the same things that men would inherit. They knew that a woman's status in the church was one where all of the promises that the Lord Jesus had given to them was true for males was also equally true for females. They knew that. Women were there present in the very first meeting in Acts chapter 1 when the Holy Spirit fell on them on the day of Pentecost, and they were all baptized in the Holy Spirit, and they were gifted. Women were present there. There were a significant number of women, including the mother of the Lord Jesus, Mary. She's mentioned there, and they were there. They were part of the fellowship of the disciples. They were treated as equals. Women were counted as disciples, just as the men were counted as disciples. But the entire congregation was of one mind about this, that men should lead. Men should exercise authority, not women. From a practical point of view, you could easily argue with this. You could easily make the case that women would have been very helpful in such a role as this. Women women would have lots of sympathy for widows. After all, widows are women, right? If you're a woman yourself and you're thinking about what might happen to you in the future, you might want to put a little extra care into the care of these uh, elderly women, Only women really can bring that feminine touch to a touchy problem and you could see how their wisdom could be used. Women are typically very skilled in details. They could make sure that there are no additional problems that would arise. Problems could be averted because of their skill with detail. Women could directly involve themselves in the care for the other women in a way that a man could not. Bedside, be right there for them. But knowing all of that, Still, seven males, it specifies, were chosen. Additionally, we know that all 12 of the apostles who were chosen by who? By Jesus. Jesus is not a man who was uh, culturally convenient. He was a man who was willing to take on anything in his society that was wrong. But he knew that before God, in God's sight, he wanted men to lead. Jesus chose only males to be the authority and the foundation of his church and to teach the doctrine that he wanted taught. That's very clear. That's just a fact. The reason for male teachers and males in authority goes back not to prejudices in Israel or prejudices in the Greek world or the Roman world, and there were prejudices. There were deep prejudices against women in those worlds. It goes back to God. It goes back to the way God created humanity. It goes back to God creating man and woman equal, but He made them differently, and He did it on purpose. From the very beginning, before there was any sin in the world, before prejudice could get started, before chauvinism could be showed, there was God's decision and His distinguishing between male and female. We took, some of you came and took the anthropology. Class that we teach here in Gamma Bible Institute just this last month, and we covered many of the salient observations going back to Genesis chapter one, Genesis chapter two, Genesis three, and just looking not at in interpretations but just the observations, things that cannot be denied that men and we, uh, men and women were made equal, both made in the image of God, both expressing the image of God, but made differently. And some of the things about differences we found back then were God created the man first before He created the woman. We learned that in Genesis 2. God did that on purpose. Then he decided to make sure that when the woman was made, the woman's existence would not be made the way the man's was, where he took dirt from the ground, where he took the soil and the dust from the ground, but rather in this case, he took a part of the man so that the woman's existence was derived from the man. And then God stated explicitly that the reason for the woman's creation was for the man. The woman was created, Genesis says, for the man, not the man for the woman. Then God decided to bring the woman that he made and present her to the man. And when she was presented in her innocence, she remained silent in his presence. She knew in her womanhood not to speak. She didn't even need to be taught that. She understood that in her femininity, in the very core of her being. She knew that she was supposed to let him lead. And he knew he was supposed to lead. And so he speaks and she does not. And as he speaks, he names her and speaks for her and on her behalf. And even when you continue to move into the narrative from chapter 2 in Genesis into chapter 3, as man makes that fateful decision and falls into sin and corrupts his posterity, yet Adam's headship can still be seen when the woman ate. He was told, the day you eat of this fruit, dying you will die. That's what it literally says in the Hebrew. We translate it, surely you will die. But it means dying you will die. It was emphasized. Eve was not even in existence when God spoke that to Adam. She hadn't even been made. Adam was told, you eat this forbidden fruit and you will surely die. But Eve went and she ate the fruit and she did not die. Her eyes were not opened. Then she presents it, it says in Genesis 3, to her husband, to her head, to Adam. And when he ate it, what happened? They both had their eyes open. Why? Because he was the God-appointed leader of the home and that's how God dealt with it. God held the man accountable for the decision, not the woman. When he came in the garden, he called for Adam. He called for him to give an account for his home, for his actions, for both of their actions. In fact, God only pronounced Adam's death. You'll never find in Genesis 1, 2, or 3 God pronouncing the death of the woman ever, and yet she dies. In fact, in Genesis 3, when she is told her pain will be multiplied in childbirth and the other things that are spoken to her, God turns to Adam and says, because you've disobeyed my word, you will return to the dust. And he returns to the dust, but she was derived from him, you see, and so she also returns to the dust, but she was never told directly she would return to the dust, but she did because that's how God views it. There are many other observations about the headship of the male and the support structure of the female that are embedded in those texts. Equality does not mean that women are supposed to try to act and function like men. That used to be common sense. Now it seems to be heresy. Indeed, one must be willful against the Bible not to read those facts. How could you not come to that conclusion in reading the Bible? In the church, this exact point is brought up by the Holy Spirit through Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. I'll read it for you. A woman, and this context is about the worship services when all of the churches gather together. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach Or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. It's talking about the worship service here. Talking about functioning up front, functioning in leadership qualities. And then it goes on, why? Verse 13 doesn't say because we don't want to offend the citizens of Rome. It It doesn't say because we're trying to reach the Greeks, and you know the Greeks are prejudiced against women. In verse 13, the very next verse, it says, For it was Adam who was first created. This is God's action, you see. And then Eve, it says, And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. He goes back to Genesis for the justification of male leadership. So because this position, this position of the seven involved authority over others, That fit God's express design for males. There is a difference between being male and being female, and that difference is not just in the body. It's to express itself in the home, and then it's supposed to express itself in the family of families we call the church, and it's supposed to keep on going and express itself in society. Of course, we know that's not happening. We're in a day and age where it doesn't matter which party you're rooting for right now. They're pushing as many females forward to lead as possibly can be. That is not God's design. In our culture, saying that a woman should not lead is anathema, particularly in our political season. The Bible's point, though, is that women are already equal when they act feminine, when they act in the role that God gave women, they don't need to try to be equal. They're already equal in that role. God wants them functioning in that role, and he wants men to acknowledge that role is equal with their role. Isn't it ironic that the feminist movement has done more to undermine femininity than anybody else? If you want to honor women, honor women as women. Don't ask them to function like men before we start writing them in history books and saying how wonderful they were. What backward logic the world has and how much of that has flooded the church so that people think this is strange. Please erase that from your minds. That is a lie of Satan. And when women forget what God wants for women, men don't know how to live as men anymore. They don't know what to do anymore. And all the confusion of the sexes we have, it it just one domino after another falls. I'm tempted to just kind of go that direction and preach a whole sermon on that, but I'm not going to. Men need, by the way, women to act as women. When, When men don't see women acting as women, they don't know what to do with themselves. They don't know how to act anymore. They start searching for women that do know what it means to be a woman, feminine, supportive, that that is honorable, that that is godly, that that pleases God, that submission to men is something that God commanded and and something to love. One of the examples of, of the beauty of submission is the example of the Lord Jesus Christ to God the Father, and it's often brought up that the Lord Jesus submitted to the authority and the leadership of God the Father in every way. In fact, he constantly said, I always do the will of my Father, and yet we never doubt That in his essence, the Lord Jesus is in any way inferior to God the Father. He is God of God, light of light. And so it is true, woman derived from man is just as equal, but needs to function in her role that God may be honored and glorified. Women have their role to fill in the church. That role is crucial in the church. Anyone who knows anything about this local church knows it would collapse without the work of women. The book of Acts. Abounds with the deeds of women. It highlights them in their role. Anyone can see that? It was not the role of authority. It was not leading men. That observation is just obvious as you read through the book of Acts. There's Dorcas, and she had her role, and what was she known for? Loving, kind deeds of charity. There was Lydia, what was she known for? Responsiveness to the word of God, listening, opening her home, and hospitality. There was Phoebe, a faithful servant for the church. There was Priscilla who had great theological insight and had to pull Apollos to the side and correct the man's doctrine, albeit in a kindly way and not in an official way to make sure that what he was saying when he got in front of others was more accurate. She used her knowledge in that way. There was Philip's daughters in evangelism that are shown to be proclaiming the word of God to the, to the non, uh, the unsaved and those out of the church. None in a role of leadership over men in God's church. Now, the question still remains, does the feminine role preclude women from being deacons? Because remember, we said the seven are not exactly deacons. Honestly, that's a much more involved question. It really depends on how each church defines a deacon. And that's not a cop-out because you go from church to church and there are all kinds of different kinds of deacons. Maybe you have the idea of a deacon from your previous church. There's very little instruction in the New Testament about what the deacon is supposed to do. If, on the one hand, a deacon holds authority over men, then the feminine character that God wants to preserve and which glorifies him does not fit that masculine role. On the other hand, much of deacon work is in caring for the poor and for the sick. Tenderness is needed. It's a supportive role. Clearly, that is a feminine role. Some churches have women in that role. They have women helping women. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, in verses 8 through 13, again, that's the preeminent text I mentioned before in the New Testament for the office of deacon. In the list of qualifications for the office of deacon, it mentions qualifications for women in deacon-like work. Let's turn there for a minute and look at this text because I think it's important. 1 Timothy chapter 3, 8 to 13. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13, I'll read it. It says, deacons, likewise, and if you see that word likewise, you need to read what happened before that. You see in verses 1 through 7, qualifications for the office of being an elder, an elder is a pastor. And so you have this list of qualifications Paul is giving to Timothy. And he's saying here's the qualifications for when you appoint a pastor. You find that in verses 1 through 7. Then you come to verse 8, and it says, Deacons likewise, that is, here is another office to fulfill, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, verse 9, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons, The word deacon means servant, by the way. Let them serve as servants, is what it would say, if they are beyond reproach. Verse 11, women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Verse 12, switch back to deacon. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. The difficulty interpreters have is in verse 11. Who are these women? They're clearly associated with the male deacons, but are they the wives of the deacons? Are they deaconesses? Or are they some kind of women assistants to the role of deacons. In other words, they needed uh, women along with them to assist them in the work that they're doing. The term woman there in Greek, gune, allows for any of these three views. And honestly, you'll find good and godly interpreters on all sides of this issue. In favor of the wife interpretation that these are wives of the deacons is that the word woman can and regularly did mean wife. These women in verse 11 are clearly closely associated with the deacons. They're bracketed before and after with qualifications for the deacons. They land really right in the middle of the list of qualifications. And it would make sense that wives of deacons would often be needed to work alongside their husbands in the homes of women as they went there, helping them with things that the men shouldn't touch or go near. And I'll let you think about that. However, the wife view suffers from contextual problems. These women themselves are said to need to be qualified, and the context is clearly some kind of official recognition in the church. It's even reinforced reinforced by the term likewise in verse 11, which is given for the other office. That indicates that they need to be approved and recognized by the church. That implies an office in the church. So it would be natural to see this as some office that was suitable for the work of women underneath the authority of the men deacons. Also, the usual possessive pronoun for women, if it meant wives, it would mean their women, but that possessive pronoun is not used, and that would be expected if it's talking merely about the wives to distinguish the wives from other women. Furthermore, wives of elders, if you look back through verses 1 through 7, would expect it to be qualified also. After all, they would need to control their tongues and many other characteristics as well, but none for the wives of elders are presented in an even more important office. So you can see why there's debate. Historically speaking, the early church from the second century on did have deaconesses, deaconesses who did not lead other men but they led other women and they cared for the needy poor. They worked alongside and in submission to the male deacons. Church history from the second century, just again, I say just beyond the time of the apostles where we have the record of these things emerging, shows that deaconesses were needed for helping to baptize the female candidates. In those days, baptism was largely done outside in running water. The, the candidates would often completely disrobe and it would be obviously very inappropriate for males to be baptizing the females. So they used these deaconesses for that, that role. They were also used for the care of women at their bedside, often having to enter into their homes, a location that was not appropriate for men. Dr. Leon Morris writes this, the social condition conditions of the time were such that there must have been the need for feminine church workers to assist in such matters as the baptism of women or anything that met with women's quarters in their homes, end quote. Deaconesses also helped in pagan homes, interestingly, where the husband was not saved, the wife was saved, and she needed care, and the pagan man would not let the men church leaders into his home. And so the, the women were more readily accepted uh, into the home. Sometimes they would bring, if the person was shut in for a period of time, they would bring what we call the Lord's Supper, they would bring the Eucharist, and uh, if they had missed that, they would attend to them that way and in other ways as well. Women, deaconesses also visited other women who were put in prison, sometimes for their faith. Some believe in Romans chapter 16 and verse 1 that it speaks of an actual deaconess, In the New Testament, where Paul writes, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a, and depending on which translation you have, it says, who is a servant. Actually, that's the feminine form of deacon. Remember, the word deacon just means servant. But it says this, who is a servant of the church, which is at Sencria. And so because it's tied to a particular church, some believe that she was sent out by that church in some role in order to deliver possibly even the letter of Romans in delivering that and was trusted with a faithful act that was conducive to the role of women in the church. But it's hardly clear that she was a deaconess because that term can be used either way. I know all of this is technical, but I know that you're also, some of you, very interested in this, so I wanted to take my time with that. All in all, it it seems without more specific information in Scripture, it's best to see that there is a vital role for women in deacon-like work, but to make sure that their sphere of work or authority is with that of other women. At least everyone can agree on that. Hope Bible Church currently has recognized women leaders we recognize them more for their doctrine in teaching in our Women of Hope ministry so that when they're teaching other women, they've been checked as to what it is that they believe and their, their teaching is, is scriptural and is biblical. We haven't really done that yet for deacon-like work. And so there's more room for some thought and discussion and development at Hope Bible Church. All of that was just the ninth observation. I wanted to take my time with that so I didn't get 37 questions afterwards, but I probably will anyways. But <laughs> tenth observation. And this is the last observation. Appoint the leaders in a formal process that's done in a public manner, a formal public process. Look at verse six. And these, these seven, they brought forward, brought before the apostles, And after praying, they, that is the apostles, laid their hands on them. Please notice, and not to belabor the point, but just to dissect the text for the sake of analysis, this appointment process had four steps. First, the congregation brought them and formally presented them to the apostles. They were chosen back in verse 5. And now they're being pushed forward, so to say, in some public official capacity, probably in a worship service that they had there, probably in the temple grounds. And that shows they had the backing of the congregation, that these were their choices, their recognition. I think we could do better in that process here at Hope Bible Church for having the congregation more involved and pushing men forward, so to say, this would be a good man for this position. We do have in process, and some of you are aware of this and some of you maybe are not, and we've always practiced that the congregation is asked to give input about each elder candidate, each deacon candidate, to weigh in on their observations before we would lay our hands on them up front. Even more so, we have a Let men be deacon candidates, even sometimes for a long period of time before they are approved and before they're recognized as deacons. You may remember when we read through 1st Timothy chapter 3 and verse 10, it says, let these deacons first be what? Do you remember? First be tested, right? put them forward in some way where they can be seen doing something and test them. So our way of testing them is to give them a measure of leadership over some kind of a ministry and watch how they interact with people, watch how they solve problems. Can they handle life? That is, can they handle all of this ministry on top of everything else that's going on in their home, on top of all of their work assignments? If the answer is yes, then maybe we have someone that will stick around as a deacon longer. If they if they can't balance all of that or they tend to swing And not able to do that, then their their maturity and decision level might need some more maturity before we lay hands on them. We want to see how they handle life. The second step is that there was prayer for them, for God to bless them, and for God to aid them. This is during that time up front where they're prayed for by name. The apostles laying hands on them and praying for them by name. Probably this included praying for their perseverance, praying for their family. Who knows what they prayed for to avoid temptation for their ministry to flourish under them. All the, all the things that would be required of them, all of their, their visibility in the church to pray for them in that, that general example to the rest remember they're servants with a capital s and so they're to serve as an example with the heart of service before the people and i'm sure the apostles prayed for them to do that well Again, at Hope Bible Church, we take seriously that everything that we do on earth is done in the sight of God. It's all open and laid bare. When you look up right now, you see a black ceiling, you see some lights, you know, you might see some other things if you're daydreaming or whatever, but you look up, you don't see the heavens, but the truth is that every uh, true church... It is opened up before God. God is watching. We're doing what we do in the presence of Christ. He sees it all. Even the holy angels, the elect angels are watching and observing, and they know what we're doing, and they're aware of what we're doing. When, when Timothy was being charged to his service and before Paul died, he said, I solemnly charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, you preach the word. And so it's all open and laid bare. So it's very appropriate that we pray and we appeal, God, we can't do this ministry without you. We need your wisdom we need your protection, we need more men like this, and to pray that, it opens up the heavens and reminds us nothing we do down here is just about common business. It's all about the Lord's work. The third step here is that the apostles laid hands on them to identify them and to show their approval of them. This was probably done simultaneously with the praying. The laying on of hands is a symbolic gesture, but it's filled with meaning. A lot of People have, again, different church backgrounds, and you wonder, does it mean this or does it mean that? What are they doing up there besides putting 12 hands all over his body? What does that What does that mean? Well, laying on of hands is used in Acts chapter 9 and verse 17 for bestowing the blessing of healing from someone who had the gift of healing. It was also used in the Old Testament to convey a blessing. A father might put his hands on a son before he died, and he might confer a blessing. What was he doing? He was identifying with his son, and he was sort sort of showing transference was happening. There was a connection that was being made. It was very personal. You put your own hand right on that person, and there's that close identity with that person. This was a gesture that was also used in public service as well for appointing people to the service of the Lord. It's traceable back to the time of Moses in Numbers chapter 27, verses 18 to 20. There it says, So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun. That doesn't mean he didn't have a father, the son of Nun. It was N-U-N there. And that doesn't mean he came from a convent either. That's just the name of his father. (laughs) Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him and have him stand before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation, notice the formality of it, and commission him in their sight. You shall... Put some of your authority on him in order that all the congregation of the sons of Israel may obey him. You see that? Transference of authority. Now, authority doesn't actually come from us, it comes from God, but it's the recognition that this is what God has said to do. The laying on of hands was meant to pass on that authority even in the congregation. When we get to Acts chapter 13 and verse 3, it talks about setting apart missionaries, laying hands on them and then sending them out. Again, as you go and as you teach and as you preach and as you suffer, we're there with you. And by the way, you represent us. We laid hands on you, now go. Second Timothy chapter 1 and verse 6, the laying on of hands was done for recognition as a man into the office of full-time pastor. Also in First Timothy chapter 4 and verse 14, again, set apart for the office of the gospel, a pastor, full-time, the preaching of the gospel. And really, it's done for all of the pastors, all of the elders, the laying on of hands. Alexander Strauch has this quote about this laying on of hands. He says, he writes, Because of confusion or superstition surrounding the laying on of hands, many churches today avoid its use entirely. That is unfortunate because the laying on of hands can be a meaningful public act. It seems reasonable to assume that the imposition of hands in Acts 6 visually expressed the apostles' blessing, commissioning the seven to a special task, and transferred the authority to do the job. Because of the seven's responsibility of handling large sums of money and the growing tensions between the Hellenistic Jews and Hebrews, the apostles knew that the situation demanded an official public act of appointment, end quote. The fourth and the final step is that these men arose, so to say, from their spot. They may have been standing, and immediately they began their work as a deacon or as a proto-deacon. Immediately they began their work. There was no waiting after this. There was no week-long celebration. Let's have a a week-long fiesta here. The work and the ministry began immediately. There's no such thing as spare deacons who aren't doing anything, if you're a deacon, you do the work. The authority for the task was imparted immediately, so they would immediately begin the work, and they did. Instantly, they were in office, and instantly, we began to see the results. Thus, the seven began exactly the task that they were given, to manage the affairs of these widows so that all would go well. Now, does that mean that was the only thing that they did? No. As we read on in the book of Acts, we'll see that, they, that these men had other gifts, And they did other things as well. But this, I'm sure, they made job number one. Make no mistake about it, deacons are... You ask, what actually is a deacon supposed to do? Well, their name means servant, but deacons are managers. They are managers of the affairs of the church. We don't know all they did. We actually know very little about what they did, other than what we're told in in the few verses in the New Testament and from church history. But we do know they led other servants to do servant-like work. What is that? That's called management. That's called leadership, managing servants to do ministry. That was their job, to make sure the ministry was done well. Now, in the first century, that would involve whatever their ministries were. In the fifth century, that would involve, again, maybe different kinds of ministries. We're in the 21st century, and the church is complicated today. That means there are a whole lot of things that need to be managed in a church our size in the modern church in the modern day. That's, again, why verse 10 of that First Timothy 3 passage says they have to first be tested, they have to be qualified. There is a lot of authority and a lot of hands-on work that's going to be going on, and they have to be men that are trusted. They have to be men that know what they're doing. They're appointed to an office as servant. They're appointed to leadership, and they need to do that well. As I said, even the term deacon itself means servant, but it's servant with a capital S, you know, a formal servant before others, teaching servants how to be servants, taking them in their gifts and showing them how to use their their gifts in the body of Christ. Others are going to see men like that, we pray and hope, in our congregation, and make them uneasy about the fact that they're not stepping forward to be deacons, that they're not being used of God with all their skill and ability. They are to do that. And they are leaders. And heaven knows the church needs lots of good leaders. They're not merely good examples. Remember, there are many, many good examples of servants. These servants needed to not only be good examples, have a sincere heart of serving in the most menial tasks, but also be men who could manage other people to do the same. Management is inherent in being a deacon. And I think it's very clear that this group had to manage as well. And what they did helped the elders, the pastors, not to have to do that portion of the ministry. That was the point. In both Acts chapter 6 and in First Timothy chapter 3, both texts indicate very clearly that the main purpose for deacons in the local church was to assist the elders to take care of all of the business and all of the ministry in the church that did not directly fall under prayer and the ministry of the Word of God. The qualification that elders are given that they must be able to teach is never given in the list of qualifications for the deacons. And that is impressive because almost every other qualification that is given for elders, that they need to manage their home well, that they shouldn't be double-tongued, that they you know, shouldn't be filled with wine and all those other qualifications, it's the same for the elders and the deacons. But for the elders, they're told they have to be able to teach. To the deacons, they're never told that because that's not the main arena of their ministry. They're given their ministry to free up and allow the full use of the gift of the pastors and the teachers in the church. In fact, you'll see that in First Timothy 3, also in Titus 1. Please understand that if there was no office of deacon in the New Testament, we would be forced to invent one today, just to keep the priority of the ministry of the Word of God going and uninhibited because there is no other office in the New Testament besides the office of deacon to handle the business and the ministry nuts and bolts of the church. It has to be managed by somebody. If it's not managed by deacons, it invariably falls on the pastors to do it. Beloved ministry did occur in the local church back then. There was lots of ministry. There were lots of people that needed to be cared for. There were funds that needed to be distributed. There were needs that had to be searched out and found out whether they were, they were true needs or whether someone was abusing the system. There was order that had to be established. There were meetings that had to be called for. There was communication that had to be disseminated. None of that is the ministry of the Word of God. None of that is the stuff the pastors are supposed to be doing. The local church could not function even in those days without these regular kinds of ministries and meetings occurring. Listen, please, to this. The elders should not be doing these things in ministry. They must be putting their time into the Word and into prayer. We have eight deacons currently in our church, and I know that the elders are all very grateful for them. They work hard. But we're still praying after many years as a church for more men to step forward, to see their giftedness, to obey God's promptings, to take on this kind of work and take this kind of work off of our shoulders. Because if I can just give a personal note, there's still way too much of my time that is involved in doing this kind of work. Personally speaking, and I imagine if each elder could speak their own true heart, they would say there's still way too much of our time that involves the kind of work that is supposed to be done by other leaders and by deacons. There are some 40, 45 ministries of Hope Bible Church that need constant oversight and organization and planning and communication, and that takes an awful lot of behind-the-scenes work. I know that sometimes the young boy in church jokes about, I want to grow up and I want to be a pastor because he only works on Sundays. (laughs) And I want to give all of you the tour of what goes on on the other days. Well, very briefly, and I'm out of time, but I have to mention the result in verse 7, the third part of our our outline, the result, verse 7. The word of God kept on spreading and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. There is a connection between verses 1 through 6 and verse 7. It's no coincidence that Mark that Luke marks not only that the word increased but he does it immediately after the installment of the 7. Increased is the word spreading, Oxano. It means to to grow and to increase, to swell, so to say. It's, it's an imperfect active, which means that there was an ongoing power to the Word of God. The Word of God continued to be ministered. Because the apostles were free to minister the Word, the Word kept increasing, and then the number of the disciples also kept increasing. When you free the Word of God, it tends to bring more converts and more disciples, and the church tends to grow. That's the vision that's happening here. Please understand that the Word of God presents this as a positive thing. I know there's some that always get worried about church growth, but here it's a positive thing. It's a thing to work for. It's a thing to plan for. It's a thing to pray for. It's a thing to organize your leadership so that it comes about. Church church growth gurus of the day often pervert church growth into teaching that will do Anything pragmatic just to win people who are not coming to church back, that that is a perversion of this, and that's wrong. But we don't want to go to the opposite end and err and say, look, uh, we don't want to talk about church growth. The Bible talks about church growth in a positive manner. The book of Acts celebrates the word of God spreading, disciples increasing, the church growing. Just let it be the true gospel and the taught word of God from solidly, doctrinal people like the apostles and wise leadership structure that causes that growth. The word was increasing so well, Luke is compelled to record that at this time there were inroads that were being made into the Jewish leadership among the priests of all people. Can you imagine that? This is one of the more astounding statements in the book of Acts. I wish I had more time, but it's a, a fact that few people recognize that not only were there tens of thousands of Jews that believed Jesus was the Messiah of Israel, that's a very important apologetic note, but there were presumably hundreds Hundreds of priests that analyzed the scriptures, and yes, they were intimidated by the Sanhedrin, but even with that intimidation, they converted to be followers of Jesus Christ. The priests did that as well. Notice it doesn't say a few priests. It doesn't even say many priests. It says a great many of the priests. Paulus Oclos, a great crowd of priests came to faith in Jesus Christ. There were hundreds, maybe thousands eventually, of Jewish priests that came to faith in Jesus Christ. That's an amazing statement that many in the history of Christianity, they don't get that that happened. And notice that they themselves understood that when they came to faith in Yeshua as the Mashiach of Israel, the anointed king, David's son, when they came to faith in him, they understood they were coming to the obedience of faith. That to place faith in Jesus was not a just a casual thing, like you might select one guru to believe in, and then the next year you might say, well, now I want to be a follower of a different rabbi. When a priest understood they were confessing Jesus as Messiah, they were confessing themselves and bringing their lives into submission and obedience to the teachings of Jesus. Do you see that? The obedience of the faith. Listen. Obedience never saves any of us. Not one act that we do can ever commend us towards God. We're just too filled with sin for that to work. But anybody that thinks that they can have faith in Jesus Christ and it's not followed by a life of increasing obedience doesn't understand what it means to believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. God didn't save you so much to rescue you from hell. That's very nice. He saved you so you would be the kind of people that live before his eyes obediently. And if whatever faith you profess to have today does not result in obedience, brother or sister, I have to tell you, you're not actually saved yet. To believe in Christ in a way that is a true disciple of Jesus Christ is to understand I now say no to me, I die to me, to my dreams, to my beliefs, to what I was taught growing up, and now I am obedient to the faith, the Christian faith, the New Testament teachings of Jesus Christ. And I pray that you understand that, and God will minister that to your heart and to your mind and to your soul. Father in heaven, thank you for this practical text We're grateful to see at the end such a swell of believers. It excites us. We know, Father, in your sovereignty, you're in control of when the church grows and when it's slow to grow. And we know that our job is just to be faithful and leave church growth in your hands, Father. But we pray for growth. We pray for our faithfulness, that you might use us as instruments more obedient in your hands, that you might be pleased with our lives and use us in evangelism to penetrate different quarters of our city and our community and our counties, that you will use us through technology and on the air if you'd be so pleased, Father, as well, and that you'll help everybody in this church to be a disciple indeed of Jesus Christ and not be lazy and not do anything, but to rise, find their gifts, and put them into use. And Father, we'd be remiss if we didn't pray those, Lord, that you're prompting in their hearts, and you've made them spirit-filled men and wise, that you would see that it is your will for them to serve and dedicate themselves in the church as deacons, to help manage others who don't quite know how to do ministry, to organize them and get them excited about the use of their spiritual gifts, and and. Christian ministry all unto the glory of your son thank you for this time of worship we've had together we've heard your word lord help us to be obedient to the things you've taught us in Jesus name we pray amen